practice makes good afternoon everybody this is practice makes practice the podcast uh, thank you for joining us today we have justin mick Eldery on the show uh, justin is uh, running the practice work study here in atlanta georgia and he is also running educated guests um, and so welcome 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 to the podcast justin how's yeah. it going fantastic this is a it's a long time coming i appreciate it yeah, yeah super super thrilled to have you here today um we've got so much to ta- like touch on um how before we get anything specific how are you feeling just today this day and age it's you know we're we're getting towards the end of the year there's been so much going on where are you at emotionally yeah um it's funny because i'm actually as you know and we've talked about it before very connected with um my spiritual life and sometimes I'm really in alignment with it and sometimes I'm way out of alignment and off balance. Right now I'm in a time where I'm pretty aligned. So, uh, you know, whether you choose to look at it from like an Eastern or a Western view, my chakras are aligned or Western view is like, I'm, I'm, you know, talking and in constant conversation with my creator. So for me, what that looks like in a day-to-day basis for more like practical words is like, I'm feeling good. It's like, uh, um, I think that I can choose my own heaven and, or my own hell every single day. And right now, as of late, I've been choosing heaven. So feeling pretty good. That's beautiful. Um, <clears throat> I think that uh, the power you're taking to control your perspective, no matter what's coming in and out, I think is probably helping you find clarity in what motivates your work. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, yeah. Um, A lot of what we'll probably talk about in a little bit has to do with bringing a holistic approach to practice of any kind of, of, of any art, which we'll talk about in terms of like mm-hmm. how I view what is art and what isn't art. Um, but yeah, I think bringing your whole self into it is important. And, you know, um, being able to express the polarities of your attitude towards your days and your weeks and your months is, uh, is sort of the name of the game for me, at least. Well, let's, let's get right into it. I, first off, uh, for our listeners, how would you define your practice? So, you know, you're, you've got work study mm-hmm. and you've, and you've also got educated guests. Um, and then from the way you framed it, you also have your practice as a human being. So <laughs> let's, let's talk about these like multimodal practices, you know, it's super yeah, relevant. for sure. Uh, so I'll talk about work study first. Um, like sort of evolved out of what I was doing with educated guests, but specifically when I do client work, proposals and things like that come from work study. And there are two parts to the way I do work. Um, There's a provisional part. I just like break it up as either I'm doing provision or I'm doing investigation. And what that means is that I'm, it allows for sort of a fluidity of being able to provide for my family, provide for those I care about, um, build a financial stable base and do work that actually uh, gets paid a reasonable amount while also leaving room for the investigative work on the other side of the house, which is, you know, coincident with study 
um, in which, you know, I, I'm able to ask difficult questions, um, doing things that don't necessarily have an immediate payoff. So if one were to, you know, zoom out and say, well, what is going on day to day? There's either provisioning or there's investigating. And the two questions that coincide with that are one, you know, what is most useful to people right now? So sometimes that might actually be like, yeah, let's do an integrated marketing plan for this random company, or let's do, um, let's renovate somebody's bathroom, or let's, you know, uh, provide a brand refresh. That's useful to people right now. Whereas the investigative work is asking the question of what might be of concern to people and to the world of the future. And that allows you to write papers and to do projective work and um, sort of that speculative work and, um, all of that, yeah, it's a different way of dividing the house as opposed to saying, well, we do graphic design and we do environmental design and we do installation. Yeah, I mean, things, the world, nobody comes and wakes up and say, I need graphic design today. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, you know what I need is a good fresh cup of graphic design. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like nobody, nobody said that. So it's like, you got to maybe um, divide the house differently. Right, right. That's fascinating. Um, so on a top level, like, how did you evolve to this place of, of understanding that work study was how you'd like to approach uh, your practice? Yeah, um, it, I mean, it's an eternal curiosity. If you look at my, uh, I guess, Instagram mm-hmm. version of me, the, uh, <laughs> as Elon Musk would put it, like the digital manifestation of me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but if you look at that, it's like the, my only, I guess, bio, whatever, it says still learning. And that's the, um, the, the moniker from educated guests and all that good stuff, catchphrase, if you will. But yeah. the, per- the point there is that um, I have a tough time just sort of like accepting things as they are, uh, like most people do. So I like asking a lot of questions and um, I realized that could get me lost into this world of sort of like masturbatory uh, questioning and answering and reading and all that stuff. So that's, that's nice and all, but and if you also plan to like live in 2020, 2025, <laughs> 2030, you kind of need to like make money and, you know, <laughs> support people around you and sure. not be, not be a, you know, a load on other people. So yeah, I think breaking it in those two ways allows me to um, very realistically use both sides of my brain, the practical side and the imaginative side. That's fantastic. So it, like in a given week, how much time would you say you devote to the two sides? Or are they just constantly interwoven on every single like project? Or Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. If you ask me that question, maybe in uh, March of 2020, it'd be far different than in October, November 2020, because I was spending a lot of time on the work side uh, where I was actively doing client work. I was looking to like, you know, find this client, that client and do get stuff out into the world. Whereas today um, in autumn of 2020, I, uh, I took a new route and decided to extend how I actually learn. And what that means is basically I enrolled at a Harvard's Graduate School of Design. So, yeah, it was a it was a big move for me uh, just to stop and put pencils down very literally and figuratively. Just put the pencil down and say, all right, dude, if you want to be able to ask these tough questions about the world and you want to, you know, go after hard problems, 
Um, what would it look like if you were to put yourself in a position in proximity with others who are doing that every day? Mm-hmm. And um, this is, it's been as quite a sacrifice as you might imagine. Like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah God, so. I have like a million questions. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. I want to make sure I'm following all of this correctly. So you actually started educated guests first. Yeah. And how long have you been running educated guests? Since April of 2018. So two and a half years at this point. Word. Okay. So what motivated where did that come from? So just talk a little bit about that first, and then we'll get on to work study. And then I'd love to get a little more clarity around Harvard Graduate School of Design. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, so educated guests came from a spirit of um, wanting, it's like wanting clean water, wanting information and wanting um, knowledge on what it meant to be a designer. If you were to go look at anything I did at 2017, 2016, 2018, uh, the, yeah. qu- the quality is not there. The knowledge isn't there. The nothing is there because I didn't study design in undergrad. I studied mm. economics and um, I was always curious, like most people are, about how to like bring creativity into my practical life and like build a career around this. And nobody would seem to want to answer my questions. So <laughs> I basically was like, you know, I'm going to create my own school that other people who are interested in this field can get answers that they are looking for. So what it evolved into is um, a very literal virtual lecture hall in which 170, at this point, 178 hours of lectures and lessons are available for people to go and get their own education. And what I think it has amounted to for me is a very public like pre-thesis for my practice. And if people were to listen from episode one until episode, you know, lectured 178, which came out today, actually. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah. I appreciate it. It's like, you know, you kind of see what's going on. That is amazing. So uh, don't want to focus on too much, but before educated guests, how like uh like how long were you working not in economics or or was there a time you did work um you go down the path of being an economist and then yes slide over to to create creative and you know and i don't want to say actually that being an economist is inherently not creative also i want to throw that out there yeah that i think creativity can touch literally everything a human touches uh I almost think we can't help but be creative, but I think we'll dive into that in a second. (laughs) But uh, but when did you like sort of connect the dots specifically that you were like, okay, the real expression for me, you know, the real alignment for me is to go into design, go into art, go into art direction, whatever. Like, Mm -hmm. were you doing that before Educated Guests, I assume? So there's a couple of questions in there. The first one I'll answer is, was I doing it before Educated Guests? Uh, yes, but not as, um, wasn't as, I guess, uh, how's the word to put it? Like wasn't polished, as good at polished. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. just, yeah, polished. I wasn't as good at it as, good at it as I am now. And mm-hmm. I don't even know if I'm good now. So I, I think that mm-hmm. just kind of tells a, spect- a spectrum story. Um, Be very careful about thinking you're good 
Exactly. <laughs> that's, a, that's advice for anyone listening. Exactly. So yeah, that's uh, like your the day you die. <laughs> exactly. It's like I'm always trying to have much potential. I think I right. have, I think there I have a go. lot of potential right now. So beautiful, In, um, infinite potential. Yeah. yeah. So uh, to answer, yeah, it's more specifically, when did I make the transition? I think it happened around 2017, 2018. I was a guy who was working at a large um, consulting firm, strategy consulting firm, and I would help. I would fly across the country, making a lot of lot more money than most families make around, you wow. know, 22 years old. And right, right. I was able to see a lot of the world, experience a lot about business, experience a lot about create about um, the way companies are operating and the role that creativity plays in companies. Um, mm. And I was able to transition that into a specific role in like as a strategic designer. So -hmm. what that meant is that instead of like making PowerPoint decks to uh, basically suggest how companies can make 2% more, um, instead it turned into figuring out how assets and products could help companies run more efficiently. Mm -hmm. Um, However, what that meant in the, it's like an investigative, like curious person is that obviously you begin to realize that by nature of introducing assets and products into large, large, large corporations, you start to realize what's really happening. Like this is the beginning of um, the future of, of, of how work is done, of how companies grow. People mm-hmm. aren't doing mundane jobs anymore. Um, everything is becoming, you know, very, very lean and, you know, all about mm-hmm. efficiency. So it prompted me to very, to really investigate what the future of creativity could mean and um, like what would a, a creative person's role be? Um, so now mm-hmm. I guess to add one more pin on this, I probably feel like I've been talking for a minute, but one more pin on that is that before any of that, uh, like most people, my journey creatively began in music at age like 10. So I've always, Ooh. I play like three instruments. I worked in the music industry for a while and um, had a lot of success. And then, yeah, that was, that's, that's kind of a separate tangential story that is may, may or may not be relevant depending on if you're curious. I think it's relevant. Um, I've, I, I often feel like a connection to music because to me, it's like the most visceral art form. It might be potentially the most potent form of art I think in terms of its ability to uh, be accessible in a way to anybody, like as far as like understanding it, you don't have to like logically understand music. Like you feel it, you know, like everybody that has a favorite song or has a favorite artist that they follow or whatever it is, you know, it's not because they're like, well, this is exactly how they break down their music and it's perfect because of this. It's like, yeah, it, it helps them recognize a potential environment within themselves. And I think that's why music is so powerful. And I also think that it, like the more designers that I interview, the more I hear that the link is music and design or like the the way they understood they were creative was through a gateway of music. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, I think it's incredibly relevant, you know? Um, yeah. So, the, I mean, the thing I've realized is like um, any any art form just comes down to manipulation. That's the singular word. And 
it's very, it's a contentious word because many people view manipulation through a negative connotation. But when you think about why the music and visual arts connect is because they're just manipulated sound and, and or light waves. And mm -hmm. as by nature, our body like reacts, as you know, to those two things. And it just, it, you know, I think one of the things we might get into is sort of like, what, what is it about art and design and the practice of art and design that is so important and is so attractive to many people because people realize the power of manipulating sound and light mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what that does to people over long periods of time if you're a consumer of somebody else's manipulation. Wow, that's, that is a powerful statement. Um, so I'm going to go on a tangent. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, so I think what you said is completely accurate, that ultimately light and sound are vibration, mm -hmm. right? That's the way that we take in that data. And it's been said that basically what happens like in physics, right, is that everything is vibrating, everything. And, and what our conscious mind will end up doing is, is effectively translating something into form. Like we interpret vibration as a thing, mm -hmm. you know? And so when you take it to the level of like emotionality and art and you're playing with effectively like a core universal element, which is this vibrational quality, um, you know, and a lot of, I think when you talk about manipulation of light, you know, light is probably the closest thing to like core creative energy that we have mm -hmm. just because of the setup of how our universe is effectively avoid <laughs> with light interspersing, you know, I, it's everything we consider like as matter and creativity tends to be light mm. or, or derived of light. So uh, I don't know if that threw our listeners into a way other <laughs> but, <laughs> well, no, I think it's very, I think it's very relevant. I think yeah. I, I was talking to, uh, I don't want to go there, but I think it's very relevant because um, of some recent conversations I was having. And what we were talking about is sort of the nature of how sound and how sound and light waves react to external pressures. And, um, wow. you know, light waves can't permeate a wall. Like if you sign a flashlight at a wall, it's going to hit that wall and not go through it. Right. But sound waves hit a wall, go around the wall, underneath the wall, up over the wall. And it just speaks to the, if you view the wall as your conscious mind or your unconscious mind, you know, mm -hmm. and the ability for a, a work of art or whether that's visual art or, you know, auditory art to permeate what's inside of you or permeate the condition, you know, as a conscious mm -hmm. mind and, and hit your subconscious is powerful because every designer wants to be a musician and every musician wants to design the same way like yes. rappers want to hoop and hoopers want to rap yes so, you know what i'm saying yes so. i do i do and it's funny because um i i'm a i also dj i think we've mm. talked we've talked about this right and that like, yeah. i have been also involved in music since i was like 11 years old mm. and there's something so interesting about like my relationship to sound and sound design. I've often like thought like effectively a DJ is a designer. They're taking available material and 
making decisions about it, manipulating it in certain ways to compile it so that it creates a certain kind of environment or a certain kind of emotionality in that moment to the listener, you know? And yep. so to me, that translation of like doing that visually and doing that sonically is perfectly reasonable, you know? Um, yeah, I think it's just, I mean, to put a pin on the whole point we're on, I think if people feel lost or anything like that, <laughs> What we're what we're essentially talking about is the power of art. Like nobody talks about why do people want to be artists? Why do people people want to be designers? Because subconsciously everybody knows the power of it, but nobody can really articulate why it's powerful. This is why it's powerful. It's at mm -hmm. a at an elemental level, at a at a meta metaphysical and physical level. It's powerful in that way. Definitely. So taking something like that. Is that knowledge something you carry around with you every day when you get into your work, you know? And how do you translate through the layers of like that sort of big, beautiful, universal thinking down to the nuances of like making it your way through a project? Yeah, um, I used to be very egoic about uh, how I practice and how I did work because I didn't know much, you know, you, mm -hmm. you're, when you're, when you're, it's like being a child, like when you're new to any craft, you're just a child again. And as a child, you want your opinion to be heard and you want people to look at your paper when you color inside the lines. And as a result, when I was early in my practice, I was like trying to show off all these new techniques that I could do. And it's like being, another analogy is like <laughs> basketball. It's like, when you're new to the league, you're trying to like impress all the, the veterans by like going through your legs 17 times and like, you know, behind the back, off the backboard and dunk on somebody. And that's like, bro, that's still two points. Right. So, right, right. It's like the, the aggregate result is the same. Yeah. yeah. So what I've actually graduated in my personal practice, my personal explorations is sort of graduating to this idea of how can I execute in as few moves as possible? Like, how can I get so, you know, a lot of, a lot of artists talk about this. I mean, I remember Drake was talking about it for a minute when he was still like, making complete bodies of work that were interesting to me. Um, yeah. But I think what he, his, his coming up work is going to be interesting too. Uh, yeah. But basically when it took more than two years to release an album. Um, but my point was, he was saying like, my goal is to, I think it was prior to him releasing views. Like my goal is to say what I would normally say in 16 bars in four bars. Oh, wow. So it's like to get that detailed and that specific, that, like um, purposeful in your linguistic use and your, or excuse me, in your language and your visual expression and your audible, audible expression. Like that's my, um, that's my aspiration right now. So what, what is it uh, about maturing design practices that find incredible satisfaction in that efficiency in the efficiency of making a potent communication or a potent expression or whatever it is, but in the least amount of strokes, if you will. Mm. You're, you're asking what is it that allows them to do that or what's interesting? About Maybe what's it? interesting or what drives it. Cause I think um, that's a pretty common thing. Like the more mature you get, the more like laser focus you, you become on like how to do that thing, but in a way that's such a, there's like this beautiful 
elegance in the simplicity of how you deliver it. Yeah. Well, I mean, a very kind of goes back to how this whole conversation started. And I think when you're young, you want to express. And when you're old, you want to ask. And Mm -hmm. I noticed one commonality with any mature practitioner or even like mature, whether they're, they could be 17 and mature. So maturity without, with no respect to age. Um, Any, the commonality is it, the best projects usually begin with a question as opposed to when you're young, they, they, I noticed that they might begin with a statement. Mm -hmm. So I am most interested in artists who are asking, you know, better and better and better, better questions, you know, Mm -hmm. like, um, so yeah, I think that is the standout thing across, across, uh, disciplines, whether you're an architect, whether you're a, um, graphic designer, auto, um, sound designer, it doesn't really matter. The better questions you ask, the better, the, the more specific, the output, the worse, the questions you ask, the more convoluted and complicated and post-rationalized the output, in my opinion. Definitely. Um, so coming back to Educated Guess, you um, you kind of had this ramp up that led you to forming your own school, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about how that, in its own way, um, became a part of like your, your life practice and, and what has your experience with educated guests been like, like, what have you been learning from it? What is, what's going on there? Yeah. Uh, so how it became a part of my life practice and then experience. So life practice wise, man, it's, it, it has taught me the art of purposeful conversation. Mm. Um, I'm not, I'm, I hope to never be an expert like we talked about, but after 170 78 hours going on 200 hours at the end, by the end of this year of people talking, like just recorded conversation, recorded monologues, recorded dialogues. I know how conversations can move and how you can purposefully move a conversation in a certain direction. Mm. And it taught me a, a whole, whole lot about what was being done to me in the past. And it's able to help me be more perceptive in what people are doing through conversation, through nuanced questioning, through, you know, how journalism is even given to mm-hmm. me. So as a life practice, um, I don't necess- I'm not necessarily swayed by any particular media and out media outlet anymore. Like I'm not, of course, like I'm still like gonna like clickbait still gets me, but I'm knowledgeable about <laughs> clickbait. I'm like, oh, I know what they're doing, but yeah, I'm, still gonna, yeah. <laughs> I'm still gonna <laughs> click on it. Uh, <laughs> yep. But uh, yeah, I mean that's that's the number one lesson is the art of purposeful questioning and how to use it in a positive way you know like Mm. i think anybody and you you probably already experienced this through this platform anybody who asks questions on on record knows where they're trying to take the conversation before they ask that Mm -hmm. one question so if you if you kind of view that you know this is a bit of a tangent if I can go on this for a second. Is that, is it okay? You have freedom to roam on this show, trust me. All right, sweet. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so if you take the example of you know programming, um, and mm-hmm. I think you kind of know where I'm going with this, mm-hmm. everybody wants good programming, TV shows, networks, uh, you know, event planners, everybody wants to know what the program is. Um, but coincidentally, we also refer to computer scientists as programmers. So if you view the way that 
you know, we've traditionally experienced programming through TV sets and through, you know, going and showing up to live events and the convergence of that programming uh, to be coincident and juxtaposed with the programming of technology, we see for the first time in history how close those two things can overlap. And this is expressed through like Moore's law, um, that exponential uh, curve. But the point I'm making is that until you understand what's, what sort of mindset is re required to create that programming, you'll never understand how to react to that programming. Right. So for everybody that's being swayed this way, that way, this way, that way, by every bit of news, every bit of, right. you know, thing going on, um, I would highly recommend that they get in a creative position to where they can create the programming so that they know how to react to what's being given to them. Absolutely. Do you think this is going to be a tangent on a tangent? <laughs> do, you, <laughs> uh, do you think everybody has the power, like, how would you suggest that people become more conscientious in what they're creating? And this is not tied to a profession. Mm -hmm. This is tied to intentionality. This is tied to um, seeing the matrix. <laughs> I don't know, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, have you had any moments where there's just been these huge realizations for you and, and you know? Yeah. Um, so I think the biggest revelation kind of came two years ago, maybe when I read this mm -hmm. article by a now friend and I guess like sort of tangential mentor, uh, John Maeda. He used to be cool. I mean, he's very, very, very important in terms of the landscape of design as I perceive it. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. So he okay. wrote an, he wrote an article roughly two years ago, um, basically describing how design is not a department and how design is not a, an industry. Mm -hmm. And I have since like ingested that article and sort of like made it a fabric of who I am because it's mm -hmm. changed the way that I perceive my work. Um, I think that to answer your question specifically, I think the most important thing people do, can do to be more conscious about how they create is to rid themselves of the idea that design is an industry or yes. a department of any kind. Design is either a service or in, in some cases it can be a product, but that's like where you get in that weird like art versus design argument that's just like... Crazy. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally uh the last final argument and yeah <laughs> everything else has been solved that will never be solved exactly exactly yeah. <laughs> um now go into that a little bit more though i think that's a uh so for practice makes practice one of the driving um uh questions of this nonprofit is mm -hmm. how can design um a effectively how can everybody be a designer or understand that kind of in a sense to be a human is to be a designer yeah because you and i could get into my ideas on that is you you know we all carry desire we all carry the the intention to find what makes us happy and move towards that and i think 
no matter how you make your choices in life, I think the fact that you make choices is ultimately a design experience. Mm. Uh, you know what I mean? Um, and so, you know, as we know, like design uh, as an industry is something that I think kind of evolved with the rise of capitalism and it, it really started to become, I think, a department in my opinion, probably in the late 50s, uh, early 60s, you know, like, so the more corporate um, things became, I think the more that design was viewed as this, like, okay, this is something you can do, and this is where your office will be, and this is how it provides a value. Mm. What you're talking about is it provides a value far beyond that. And I'd love to hear, so this is one of your mentors. So talk, how did you discover John? And what do you think he means? Design is not a department. If you want to dive into that a little more. Yeah, yeah. So how did I discover John? Um, it was actually through educated guests, oddly enough. So ah. one of the, I think the thirtieth uh, lecture um, was a was a dialogue between me and a a gentleman that has since become one of my closest mentors, uh, Kevin Bethune, mm-hmm. um, uh, amazing designer, uh, founder. Um, any, anything related to speculative design or uh, sort of projecting a new future of how products integrate with our day-to-day lives, he's incredible. And um, I would highly recommend anybody checking him. So Kevin Bethune. But Kevin invited me to um, a conference that John was hosting in uh, Cape Cod. And this was two years ago. No, this is last year. This is 2019. So we go up there and I was like, wow, like, this is John Maeda, like, used to be president, like president of RISD. Like, what, what are you right. talking about? Like, you know that's saying? nuts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm like, okay, like, it's a big deal. Da, 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 da. Um, and he used to, you know, MIT Media Lab. Like, I, there's certain people in design for me that their, like, reputation sort of preceded them yeah. and me knowing them. So, you know, we went up there and it's just this remarkable, like mini conference, unconference, I guess is the popular term now. It was like, it was that, it was like 30 to 30 to 40 people. Just, you know, if there were any design luminaries, they were there. <laughs> so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm there and um, it became less about like, oh, let's meet this person, this person, this person to sort of like um, level up in your career. And it became more of a, a therapeutic, you know, practice of, rediscovering the truth about why you're interested in this in the first place. So we did a number Mm. of things and just to watch how John sort of was the linchpin between all of these people who could be linchpins in their own right. Like these are like, you know, tops of the top, if there is a food chain or whatever, if there is like a a hierarchy within the, the invisible field of design, (laughs) I'm saying like, these are people. Um, So it was incredible to sort of watch that. Uh, so that's how I found out about John and sort of built a relationship with him. I guess, uh, I, could you repeat the second question? I got so far into that one. Oh gosh, no, I love how far you're getting into it. Um, and I was actually asking you to just further unpack how you interpret his statement, design is not a department. Oh yeah, this is the one, this is the one. Oh my gosh. So yeah. he, I mean, it's an amazing article. If you just type in like, um, I think it was part of, if I'm not mistaken, he does a design and tech report every year. And this was part mm-hmm. of 2019's design and tech report, 2018, one of the two. 
And he was essentially describing the relationship, particularly in tech, which I experienced firsthand, like mm. in the role that I was as a, like a strategic designer, where it was like, hey, what is the relationship between the business, the techno- the, the, the tech or you know, the technology and the design? And people often draw this like, uh, what do you like? try Venn diagram of how the three overlap and anybody who works in tech or works at a startup or works as a product designer has seen this before. Everybody knows mm-hmm. what it looks like for the most part. And there's always this competing ideology to where design thinking was working so hard for like 20 years, 30 years to get, get that Venn diagram created. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, so, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so now that it's created and now everybody's seen it, what's next? And this is what John mm-hmm. was talking about is, you know, managerial structures and <clears throat> conversational structures have, have been adapted to allow for that Venn diagram to play out in practicality, yet he describes it so beautifully. I'm, I'm not going to try to quote him or anything like that. So I'll mm-hmm. paraphrase what I understand. He essentially describes the relationship between designers and business as, again, an egoic relationship mm-hmm. to where designers and no designer is willing to admit this these days, um, perhaps, is that we've become some of the most pretentious and ego ego people, um, excuse, excuse me, egoic people in the room. You know, yeah. it used to be where it's like we were fighting for a voice. And then remember what I was saying earlier, we've turned into what's the dark night line is like, um, die and be a hero or live long enough to see yourself become a villain. And mm-hmm. That's sort of where design is right now. And some of these tech companies is like, bro, like most programmers I know are better designers than some designers I know. Yes. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm like, bro, yeah, like, what are definitely. you talking about? Definitely. Well, it's, I think one of the driving per- reasons for that, right, is that if design becomes this siloed thing on a mountaintop, it inherently is going to lack empathy. Yeah. And empathy and ego are not things that go very well together often. You know, Um, I think empathy is rooted in a a more of a spiritual center, you know, where you're willing to understand your, your actual commonality with everything else in existence. Your ego is what tries to drive your individuality. It's what tries to drive like your, it protects you on like a very basic social level. Um, So it sort of, I think, seeks division to keep itself safe. Mm -hmm. And so when ego is driving the idea of what you do professionally, and I don't mean ego in the traditional sense of like flashy ego. I mean, ego in the sense of uh, uh, this is how I identify as what makes me me and I'm special is I am a designer. Mm-hmm. And like, I think that inherently creates a problem, um, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, it's so I have one thought on that is so, uh, so interesting to me. And remember what I was saying about like design, not as an industry, but as a service offering or a product, I think that um, it can be, it can be a product if you are willing to be the product yourself. Like design yeah. is a product when you are willing to expose your your whole life and your sensibilities are expressed always through how you walk, how you move, how you dress, how you create, they're one. Mm-hmm. And it's a service offering when those two things are divorced a little bit more separate. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that 
if designers truly want to be, and I'm including myself, it's like designers want to be, um, you know, all that we want, all that we say that we want to be in these sort of boardroom meetings and all these things, then I think it's okay to not, it's okay to attach um, your image and attach your, I guess your, your identity completely to being a designer, but then you have to be able to defend every decision you make as your own life holistic view. Right. If you, if you love using the color red and you're willing to die on that sword, then it makes sense to maybe have more than two reasons as to why you think that not just because some random article said red is going to be popular now. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So then also in that way, does, how does it, divide itself from being an artist. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious if it goes to that <laughs> that place, you know? Yeah, I think um, the difference that I see is that designers are perhaps in most cases more concerned with the medium and mm. artists are medium agnostic. Okay, cool. I I would say that both have an important opinion and both have a very um, impactful opinion into a very unique worldview. However, I think that artists are, you know, if you give many artists any medium, they're either going to figure out how to work the thing and use it to their own advantage, or, you know, they're just going to be an expert at that medium already, whereas a designer is like... Or be a rebel against the medium. Yeah. That's a possibility as well. I've actually never heard anybody talk about that difference in that particular way, that it's, it's more about like the relationship to the medium. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard many, many times about like, it's the intention behind what's being created and things like that. But um, so <clears throat> through Educated Guests, you found some mentorship effectively. So what that sounds like to me, actually, have you ever heard of practice-led research? No, tell me more. All right. So there uh, is an idea. uh, It's called practice-led research. I guess I'm repeating it. But uh, basically what you're doing is instead of going about research in the traditional model where you go and Um, you know, you have questions and a topic perhaps, and then you try to like find uh, archival material Mm -hmm. and evidence to kind of like help yourself understand that question better, whatever support it. Practice-led research is you have the, you might have the same question, but instead you form something you do. There's an action you build Mm. to help mount your research it actually assembles your research through the doing and you're able to take you're able to kind of like find your results from the doing of it um Mm. so to me educated guess in essence sounds like without knowing it you formed uh your own practice-led research yeah i mean that's, that sounds way more eloquent than anything I've said so far. <laughs> yes, that's exactly yeah, what you're doing. Like, that is it. That's revelation. No, that's amazing. And um, so question with educated guests, and then I want to slide through work study a little more. Yeah, but, for sure. Um, has educated guests brought you uh, in touch with, with what, like, how have you felt joy in pursuing educated guests? And how have you evolved from when you started to where you are right now? Mm, that's a 
That's a question I have always wanted to think about, but if I ask it to myself, I don't have enough courage to answer. Oh, um, is today the day? Today is the day. This is a safe space. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, how would it, man? So I, I would say that um, how have I developed? How have I changed? You know, what have I learned and what is it sort of, how has it impacted my life and why is it joyful to me? So the joy, the joy has come from seeing from the joy has come from having so many memories documented um, for the public to see. And what I mean by that is oftentimes we only have, you know, literally fractions of our memory captured in pixels like literally split seconds of memory. And then we have these super long form memories that are still a bit choreographed in most cases in modern times. Like you're only taking out Snapchat. You're only taking out, you know, um, I don't know if anybody's taking out Snapchat. You're only taking, <laughs> you're only taking, <laughs> I don't know. It's like nobody's taking out TikTok. Nobody's taking out Instagram. Nobody's taking out Snapchat, except for the performative moments where something exciting is happening. So I got to capture it. But very rarely does anyone anymore record and public and publicize the mundane. Mm. And what is mundane? What is the most mundane thing we do day to day, but everybody does it every single day is have conversation. So mm. every single day you have our, hopefully you're having hour long conversations, two hour long conversations, but I would argue, and I've learned over the past two and a half years that we aren't doing that. And I remember we talked about this when I interviewed you is that it's such a therapeutic process to stare someone else in the eye over video or in person for at least an hour and ask questions uninterrupted and get detailed responses. Like the power and to improve your spirit, I would challenge anybody to do that. And if you're thinking of like, oh, I wanna, I'm gonna go start a podcast tomorrow because of that. It's like, no, that's not, <laughs> yeah. that's not actually what you have to do. Um, right. so th- that's the joy to answer your the second part of the question is um, what have I learned about myself? Uh, or I guess potentially about just where like it could be yourself, but it could also just be like general uh, social communal relationship to things like the world where we're at. Mm. It seems like it's been a very useful tool. I bet. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I would definitely say that it's easier to meet people because it's just like, mm. Oh, well, like, yeah, why don't you be a guest on the podcast or whatever? Like, but I don't actually do it for that. You know, I, I genuinely, um, I genuinely enjoy the time that I speak with people and it allows me to skip past all the BS questions that I've never liked in the first place. Like all the, all the happy hour questions. I'm not good at happy. If I were to give a public accusation about myself, like I'm not good at happy hour questions because within five minutes, we're either going to be talking about (laughs) how sound can bend around walls or I'm not going to talk to you. Like it's one of the two. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, but I I have a note on that. I don't mean to interrupt, but I actually think um, you inherently will attract people that are on the same kind of like energy level. You know, mm. like, so I'm the same way. I'm not a happy hour person. Mm. Like, I want to get right to it. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, like, and and what I found, though, normally is there's never really a middle ground. There's never a middle ground of someone that's going to hang on and try to go happy hour, but also want to go. 
sound bending around a wall. Yeah. You know, like it's so like one kind of repels, like energy just bounces off, bounces away. And then, and then, you know, I find a match with somebody that's like, oh yeah, we're cool. We're going to talk about this for a little bit. It's really mm -hmm. interesting how we kind of admit that, I think, you know, like it's, I think it's why you and I probably ended up like kind of locating each other. Because you and I have not actually met in person, which I also no. find fascinating and wild. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but it's so interesting because like somehow like you put up your antenna, I had my antenna up and it was like, oh, cool. Like, um, so yeah, getting back to what you're saying um, about conversation and you're not into happy hours. So yeah, go for it. I'm not sure where you were going with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, where I was going with it is two things. I think that this has, I'm going to work backwards because you inspired, a, you inspired a thought. What you just said about putting up your antenna, I think is one of the most futuristic things anybody has said without knowing that they were being futuristic. And what you essentially just said is you described the condition that we're all going to be living in very, very soon and most people have gotten a taste of it through COVID, but I think the podcast allowed me to get a taste of it way before COVID. And what it means is that we emit both a physical and a digital energy. We emit, you know, through, through how we project ourselves in person and, you know, in the physical body and how we project ourselves through the digital body emits an equal, hopefully an equal energy, but in some people it's far different. And I think that more and more and more as we move forward into 2030, into 2040, into 2050, our digital projection will be more important than the physical projection because that's how the most, like our, our realm and our sphere of relationships will, you know, just bound, be boundless. It'll be boundless to however many people are connected to the internet, which is why it's important that we get everybody connected. Otherwise, it's going to be probably very... Um, very scary for yeah. people that are not yeah exactly so <clears throat> i i would argue that um the most beneficial part of running educated guests prior to covid or running it just prior to you know being old enough to think that i should have done something like this then <laughs> you know like i think um is is for that reason so that's amazing so that's kind of a pre-thesis in general. So do you plan, I mean, is Educated Guest gonna continue ongoing or how are you feeling about it? Yeah, I think it definitely evolves. Um, I, I it definitely evolves. I'm not gonna make any specific declarations on what happens to what and where do things sure. go and which sure. shelves you put things on. But I, I'm actively thinking about that and have been for quite a, for quite a while. Um, and, I've noticed that uh, it's okay. I think I have more forgiveness with myself and what happens with things and where do things get put and what what about all this pretty things? What about all these pretty decorations that we put up? And now you tell me got to move. It's like yeah, like it's very eastern, it's very western concept to want to keep something around in one form forever. Right. Right. You know, it's <clears throat> more eastern to want to evolve and have things. You know go to go to different appear in a different way and i think mm -hmm. that's why every time people ask me about like what is it it's like well here's how it looks right now here's the current it's form perfect. but the spirit of it is more important than the form of it absolutely 
Absolutely. And it, it, it will attract what it needs to attract when it, when it needs to attract it. I, I think it's a, you know, I actually like that you're bringing that up. Um, Cause in many ways, and for anyone listening, this is like full disclosure. I've had a very similar approach to practice makes practice mm-hmm. in that, you know, yes, it's, it's filed under the guise of being like a nonprofit, but in, in essence, what it really is, is trying to be what it needs to be in that particular moment. And it will evolve to answer what it feels, you know, emotionally feels or is receiving data that it needs to become, you know, something else in a given moment and kind of mold and bend. And I kind of wonder if what we're dealing with here, Justin, is actually the future of human enterprise altogether. Mm. Right? Like, are we, Mm -hmm. you and I operating in models that we've seen other models that are equally as sort of uh, in the present moment, valuable, flexible in terms of like what a future trajectory looks like, you know, um, I wonder if that's what's happening. If like, as a human species, we're just moving away from declarative, anything being declarative, yeah. I guess is a way to put it. <laughs> well, yeah, I think the, the, what keeps me grounded, fortunately and or unfortunately, to some degree, depending on what conversation we have, we're having, is tax law. So if you look at human enterprise as, you know, the expressions of boundless energy manifested via, you know, means of producing products and or services for people to enjoy or not enjoy, none of that human boundless energy and how it manifests should ever be consolidated or relegated to any given tax code. Like the fact that, you know, you can take something like SpaceX and it's still you know, listed as aerospace engineering, NAICS code under tax law of California in this st- county, in this region, da, 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 da. like that sounds ridiculous. And by the way, they, pro- <laughs> they probably don't have, you know, California, you know, bank accounts just j- judging by taxes, but they're probably in Delaware, like every other like rich company right? <laughs> or Switzerland. <laughs> yeah. So I think that like the idea behind that juxtaposition behind the boundless energy and the relegation and the rigidity of tax law leaves for an interesting like middle ground of how we evolve day to day. So like what the most innovative companies you can probably think of in the past 20 years still aren't too different than the companies of the past 400 years, Mm. mainly because there is some similarity into what people needed then to what people need now. And there's an interesting talk that I loved recently from um, an author of one of my favorite books that I've read recently, uh, Yuval Noah Noah Harari from uh, Sapiens, 21 Lessons of the 21st Century, very popular books. And he said this and it blew my mind. I was blown away. He was like, over the past, let's go from the uh, Judeo-Christian calendar, past 2020 years um, and some years before that, if you evaluate um, the degree and the exponential curve, you would have plot an exponential curve of technological progress, i.e. Moore's law, you can see obviously that it's increasing 
you know, at a speed that's unimaginably different and unimaginably better than what we were dealing with in year zero. Right. However, mm-hmm. if you were to plot that same curve on a curve of happiness or a curve of suffering reduction, it's not, it's not um, inarguably, it's not, uh, what's the word, undisputably or indisputably clear that suffering has been reduced or happiness has gone up by an equal and opposite amount. Mm. So just that sheer fact tells us that we should not forget history and it tells us that we should not be so um, futurist to not um, understand some basic premises premises of what it means to be human because as mm-hmm. technology gets more and more introduced into our lives and we become more wedded to the ideas and the ideals of Instagram than we are to the ideals of you know walking and talking in real life um, it becomes very difficult to understand what is human and what is not so it's important mm-hmm. that we reconcile that now that's really interesting. Um, <clears throat> I had an evening, I was uh, out for drinks with some friends and I don't know where this came from, but I was <laughs> I was like getting into technology and, and AI and, and just like how everything's moving. And I, I, I posited this to one of my friends and I said, you know, in, in essence, you know, are we, designing technology that is effectively making up for what we haven't discovered that we already have. Mm. Like in our, in the capacity of how we can take, like in our brain, you know? Mm. And is it interesting that like one of our sharpest capabilities is the development of a tool, Mm. you know? And I'm thinking about things like internet and Instagram and everything we've got. And I'm like, you know, I bet you, there's a part of our brain that if we figured out how to really deal with it, we already probably have an internet in our brain and we mm. don't even know it. You know what I mean? Like, and, and we've, we've had little moments where we've touched on like collective consciousness and right. sort of telepathic impulses and things like that. And, and often I'm just really interested. I'm interested in your thoughts about like the parallel between the expansion of human consciousness happiness and the development of technology yeah for sure it's uh it's so interesting but not interesting at all that you have had that conversation recently because most times that remember i was talking about um the idea of like perceptive questioning and like understanding the type of things you're going to get down the line based on a couple of like things so i i imagine you being in a bar talking about that that's all a very complicated way of saying i imagine that to be true so at happy hour exactly exactly (laughs) so yes i have thought about this and yes i do have thoughts and um i think that it splits down the middle uh and like you might be asked or people listening i go splits down the middle of what i think that a lot can be learned about what is happening with technology right now by a evaluating what happens in our own brain to the knowledge that we can with the knowledge that we have. We can't model the whole human brain down to the atomic or molecular level, but we do know that generally like there's some degree of neuroplasticity. There's some degree of, you know, ability to model how neurons connect with one another to produce certain insights in certain sectors of the brain. So if you look at those sectors of the brain, 
and you evaluate the limbic system, which is sort of an extension of the brain, mm -hmm. including parts of it. And you evaluate like the cortex. I think it's the neocortex or I'm not a, you know, I'm not a neuro, uh, yeah, neuroscientist. So, but if you evaluate these two systems, let's just take those in a vacuum and you say that, oh, limbic system that's typically fight or flight that's our ability to say wait there's a lion i should run right. the other direction <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. and then like there's the cortex which is our ability and our capacity and i might be getting that wrong if it's not the cortex forgive me but there's a part of your brain i think it's the cortex that essentially says wait i can store things and i know this is true and i know this is true and i know this is our memory it's our ability to like it's our storage system it's our it's our uh, our hard drive of our brain Right. So why am I starting there? Like, why am I explaining it this way? Because when I really understood it this way, it simplified everything for me because what's happening right before our eyes, and it's already happened to a large degree, is that computers are have and will continue to eat away and be more efficient cortexes or cortices, if there's a plural cortex, <laughs> I don't know, but they are more efficient at storing information than we are. Mm -hmm. So as a result, we look at things and we're saying, man, I kind of remember what that person looked like. And then your computer knows exactly what they look like down to the pixel. Right, right. Through, a, through an image. So why would we as humans in our current form continue to rely on an inefficient system of memory when we have these efficient systems of memory mm -hmm. that can handle that? So some people might say, well, no, no, I like remembering things it's like, okay, well, let me paint a more optimistic picture is that what the computer cannot do at this point in time is it cannot replace the spirit of a human. It cannot, it can't currently connect some of the nodes that we know. And like you just described, we know to be connected through Eastern teachings and specifically through the limbic system where a computer can't necessarily just, you know, discern at, an intuitive level, like it can read through its own series of neural networks and produce a degree of like, oh, well, this is danger and this is not danger. But a human is perceptive enough to know that, like we all see in the sci-fi and the cyberpunk movies, like, oh, wait, like I have a reason for not killing that person and it, I can't explain it. Or I have a reason for not, I have a reason for loving this person. I can't explain it. Like any of those things you can't explain, that's the humanity in us. That's right. So, the more that we're able to allow computers to take over the tech of us, the cortex and the, the, the acts of memory and the acts of recall, those sorts of things, it'll provide more brain space for more people to have a collective consciousness of right and wrong that nobody mm -hmm. can tap into right now because they're too busy trying to figure out and memorize for some tests, like what is 200 times 252? Like, who cares? Who cares what that is? <clears throat> Let your computer do it. And leave the creative work, i.e. the intuitive work for the human side of you. That's interesting. Um, I love that explanation. And I think as well that um, one thing I was going to say that I also, in terms of memory and neuroplasticity, um, mm -hmm. I actually, so in some of my classes, I, I give an assignment about designing an indexing tool for a neuroplastic mind. Um, mm. <laughs> um, it, but anyway, what I was going to say is like, uh, I'm also of the major belief that like, you know, 
much of what you experience is the narrative that you decide to build for yourself. And the more aware you become of your ability to do that, the more aware you become that you can actually basically shift the past. Like the past is not per se a fact. The past is a, an impression. Mm. And your memory, basically everything that you think you are on both a subconscious and conscious level is a series of memories that you've built up over time. It's a series of impressions. So when you say, I am this, what you're mm. really saying is, I am affirming that this infinite buildup of impressions leads me to who I am right now. And mm. it's weird because even on an evolutionary basis, I think on a, like the subconscious does weird things like this, right? It says, my heartbeat is beating, my, this is happening, my, um, I'm seeing light. I like, that's all actually coming from many, many eons of an agreement that that is actually happening. It's really weird. Like if you want to get into some really strange stuff, you know what I mean? For sure. And so with computers coming in and helping on sort of an algorithmic level, uh, cataloging things. Yeah. Um, I am actually really interested to support what you said. Like what happens when we, we let go of the need to be so accurate from a standpoint of memorization and we open up more space for intuitive behavior um you know it could be argued in fact that intuition is is the higher intelligence than mm -hmm. the logical brain you know yes yeah. so the, one thought that you sparked uh, first of all like i appreciate everything you just said it was incredible and the act of impression the act of impressions like subconscious impressions that are placed upon us from a multi-generational standpoint gets into a interesting rabbit hole of mm -hmm. black holes and like the study of alternate realities, that sort of thing. But mm -hmm. on the topic that we're on right now, it's, you sparked an idea um, that's very interesting to me right now about what is the most, this question of what is the most effective means of communication? Mm -hmm. And how much do we truly need to say to one another through the English language or the Spanish language or whatever language through Mandarin to really understand what each other means? Mm -hmm. um, so why am I asking that question? One might say the, um, most people think that, uh, you can kind of quantify some degree of understanding from one another through this linguistic equation that we place. However, what you just described has already happened where we have removed the need to be accurate and have instead prioritized the need to be precise mm -hmm. and through precision and the way to precision is through consistency. And I bring all this roundabout way to bring it around home to say that the most valuable thing that people always talk about is like brand and personal brand instead of like keep holding on to your personal brand. What people are essentially saying is that nobody cares about how accurate you are. People care about how consistent you are with what you're projecting. Yes. So we're already communicating to one another that I don't I don't need to see, like when I when I get onto Justin's Instagram, like, I don't want to see no pictures of this because he doesn't do that. He's this, and I understand mm. him through that. Yeah. And that's why people get so up in arms when they have people doing something different than what they expect, because we've communicated to one another that consistency is a bigger priority than accuracy. So anytime someone investigates for accuracy, 
they are villainized. And anytime they, that's bucking a system, that's the glitch in the system. And the, right. the system is the consistency. So it's important to have both, but um, I would argue that we're out of balance right now. It's very interesting. Um, I'm going to counter what you just said. It's not a counter in the sense that I'm saying anything opposite. I'm gonna, but so on, a, on another level, <clears throat> we effectively perpetually live in um, infinite chaos, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you look at it at a certain level. And one way that human consciousness has been able to, and I actually argue subconsciousness, has been able to deal with it is through uh, the formation of patterns. Mm. And the human being seeks to establish patterns so that they can file away that as something known to handle the rest of the chaos around them. And what I mean by chaos is actually um, infinite information. So sound, light, um, you know, day, night, whatever is happening that you're taking in through your five senses is actually pretty chaotic. And the only reason it doesn't feel chaotic is because you've been able to establish patterns of understanding. Mm. And that's because things are being repeated. And there's sort of an eternal momentum of patterns as well, right? So it's like, okay, the sun is, or, you know, the earth is doing this thing. It's, it's, it's got a momentum behind it of spinning on axis. It's got a momentum of moving around the sun. So we have been able to be, we can establish that as a pattern to expect. And when it comes back to design, you know, pattern is, I I actually, this is another thing that I've tried to teach to my students is that there's this sort of chaotic code, which is existence, you know? Mm. And what a great designer is able to do is to look at the code and figure out a very, very clever way to represent the pattern to them. So it's Mm. not that they're necessarily inventing anything. They're understanding, they just shift around a couple of things and say, look at this. The normal human being is gonna look at that as communication. Because it seems to break that code just enough to say, oh, I twisted this. Here it is. And so when you're talking about brand, that's exactly what's happening, right? Right. There's nothing original about a brand. All that's happening is certain things have been identified out of the chaotic code that we will repeat these things over and over and over and over again. So I think it's like, I guess what I'm trying to get at is one of the possible design devices is clarifying what does that pattern need to be? What is the pattern we want to establish? And that becomes design. That was a, that was a bar right there. That was so so beautifully said. Like, I don't even think you realized it, but there was this, uh, there's this part where you're like, I tell my students to represent the pattern. And I read that as, oh, represent the pattern, representation. What does it mean to represent something? What does it mean Mm. to project an image? So really through representation, if you're breaking down phonetically, it's like, well, when we represent something, when we project an image, all we're doing is representing something you already know to be true. Right, exactly. So, you know. So it's like, what what does even that say? You know, like, it's like, um, so I think it's really fascinating that like sometimes we don't, quite understand but even just like color 
-hmm. is a pattern. Color in and of itself is a, a an expectation that we have arrived at. <laughs> right. You know, so that's so cool. Um, so I was a little curious not to depart, but what I'm actually really surprised about the Harvard Graduate School. Like, how did that come about? Uh, I just, not to pivot, you know, because so you went from basically forming your own school to mm -hmm. now going to what some people might consider the school of schools. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think MIT is up there for tech people. And, yeah. you know, of course, there's Yale Graphic Design, which is... Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> That's a whole other thing. But um, gosh, I'm fascinated. So what what drove you there? Um, it was a I think you already said it. It's a, a humility to be willing to learn from the school of schools mm -hmm. in order to know how to react. It's like what I was saying earlier about programming. If you're going to attempt to create programming or react to programming, if you're going to have an, uh, an honest reaction to a program that you don't like, you should probably understand that program in and out. So mm -hmm. what I've already seen is a very, I, uh, I take a very analytical approach to how everything's done. You know, everything from, you know, I'm sitting in a lecture, you know, Maybe maybe some people are sitting there just kind of like as a student, just like, hey, like checking it out. Da, 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 I can't wait to get out of here, whatever. Like I'm very attentive because I know how these things are done based on, like I said, 178 hours of practice mm -hmm. of knowing how lectures come together, knowing how you prepare for a presentation, knowing how you decide to include certain information versus others, mm -hmm. knowing how to deconstruct a story and the most interesting part is like understanding what is it about how this is done that commands the price tag that they demand. And, you know, whether you're on scholarship or you're on student loans or whether you're paying out of pocket, the price is the same, but, you know, depend, somebody's paying for it. So I'm not going to get into like, oh, well, they have a bunch of student, they have a bunch of financial aid, da, 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 whatever. My point is to answer your question directly is like, why did I go? Why did I feel the need to like go learn more if I'm already teaching? It's the most big, it's the biggest conundrum that in modern day, in my opinion, is like, you know, how much do you need to know before you can teach? Right. And um, my answer is probably never enough. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think it's just, it's an interesting thing to do. I think it's not the top priority. It shouldn't be the top priority for everybody to go and like seek, you know, be a career student. Um, and I don't even think I'm a career student like that in the, in, in the negative sense, but it's been an interesting adventure so far. When did you start? I started in August of 2020. Oh, it's really fresh. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So what's the cohort like? Like how many people? Uh, I think per, I mean, there's four, I think there's like five or six degree tracks. Um, there's architecture traditionally, there's urban planning, there's masters in architecture, urban planning, like masters in urban design. There's masters in design. I'm trying to name them all so I don't disrespect any of them. But the point is, um, again, this is a test of like my cortex. It's like, 
anybody yeah. can just go to go to the website like you'll see what's yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um it's a waste of energy i just showed you it's a waste of energy like trying to remember yeah. stuff totally. um yeah. uh but the core the cohort is probably 70 to 80 people per class per program um and it varies obviously depending on that but um it's very interesting because I would I would say that most people aren't above the age of 30. And that's very interesting. I mean, I'm yeah, I, I'm not above the age of 30, but I'm also not 21. So <laughs> I uh it's very interesting to like be five or six years or how many years have I been working? About six years out of school and no be back in school again. Like you have a different perspective. And I think um, I'm grateful for that time apart from this traditional school environment because I feel like I can truly learn now. That's amazing. Uh, so I want to pivot the conversation a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, we're both in Atlanta, Georgia. Yep. Oh, do you need a do you need a moment? I'm just gonna turn some light on. <laughs> Okay, cool. <laughs> All right. Sorry about that. It was getting very dark. I was like, this is getting kind of Yeah, <laughs> I know. I, I kind of preemptively turned some lights on. I, I was anticipating the sinking of the sun. Alrighty. Um, but, um, but so let's talk about, you know, where we're from. Let's talk about, so practice makes practice uh, for anyone checking it out right now. Um, we're based in the Southeastern United States. Uh, currently in Atlanta specifically, which is probably, you know, uh, I would argue the capital of the Southeast, um, the biggest city in the Southeast. Mm-hmm. Um, and Justin, how long have you been in Atlanta? I've been paying taxes in Atlanta for 10 years. So. Oh, snap. <laughs> and that's official. <laughs> and that's on record. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> so, Atlanta is a very interesting city. The Southeast is a very interesting place. Um, let's discuss culturally what's going on with it. Um, you know, you're also a black designer, which mm-hmm. I would argue um, I don't see enough of, of black designer voices emerging. Um, yeah. And I'm just so curious about what, what your viewpoint on that is and um, how do you like being in Atlanta? Uh, what are the pluses, minuses, et cetera? Just let her rip and I'll respond. Yeah. So on the question of race, I think um, it's very nuanced in depending on who you're talking to. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, how do I want to start this? I think that regardless of your practice, whether you're an artist, designer, or depart- regardless of your discipline of practice, you could be a football player. <clears throat> you're the to the degree at which race intersects your practice is your own decision. Mm-hmm. I think it is a failure for um, any outside body, you know, to determine what somebody else's degree of intersection should be. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and outside body can be in a, um, inside the same race. Like, I can't tell another black person how much they should care about being black in their in their practice. Mm-hmm. Um, or how much they should care about integrating it into their practice. And nobody can tell me. Yep. So I think to the degree that someone chooses to care about that and how to express that to obviously everybody cares about it because they care about themselves, hopefully um, is their own decision and how it manifests for me is 
changing depend depending on what I'm what I'm attempting to express. At times, <clears throat> at times it's a very political. Things are very political, in the mm-hmm. sense of like I'm actively trying to address some policy that I care about, and other times I'm actively trying to be apolitical to the point where mm-hmm. you know it's tempting to just integrate with the rest of society and be a normal person. Like, I think that's also cool to just like be <laughs> Justin. <laughs> I mean, um, I think you're a normal person. Like, I, <laughs> I was just curious. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and the other thing I think is uh, maybe with regard to race, I think there's potentially is I almost some at times I almost feel more awkward talking about race than like I think potentially the people who think they feel awkward. I think many times I'm thrown into conversations where it's like, dude, we could talk about this. And this is no critique on this particular question in this conversation. I think just in general, both like, everybody can be a little bit more lenient and just laugh. That's why Dave Chappelle is so like, such a linchpin in society. Cause everybody can look at him and be like, you know what? Can we just say that this is funny? Yeah, exactly. And it sucks because sometimes it ain't that funny, but it also depends on who's telling the joke. So all those nuances do matter. And of course, like there's many, there are many, many things to be upset about, but there are also many, many things to laugh about. And Mm -hmm. I think laughing and smiling is healing. And like I was saying earlier, you can choose your own heaven and hell. And some people choose their hell based on race. Some people choose their hell based, some people choose their heaven based on race. Mm. And um, I think, Hopefully that summarizes it, but to- no, that's, that's elegant, that's elegant, yeah. <clears throat> to choose, um, to get into the question about Atlanta and like what I think about it. Um, I think Atlanta is an interesting um, crucible for the racial discussion. Yes. It's always been that because historically it was referred to as like the city that's too busy for racism, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in, this, in terms of being a capital of the South. Like you have, you have always had some of the most affluent um, black neighborhoods, black families, you know, cohort of black people in any city, you know, in America specifically, um, in Atlanta. Uh, and at the same time, Atlanta is not divorced from any other negative history of the South. I mean, very specifically, redlining is still seen playing out today prior to even with gentrification like you see the typologies of how neighborhoods constructed which neighborhoods are where what the proximity of those neighborhoods to things like you know landscape um, grocery stores farming and the proximity of some neighborhoods to things like industrial factories smokestacks those sorts of things it's all historical it's all political and this is what i'm talking about like being black does matter to me in those respects because that's just wrong. Like anybody that says, oh, let me put this like house next to a smokestack or like a factory <laughs> right. it's like- versus, versus the others. Like, I don't care if you if it's 1865 or 2065, like people know what they're doing. And I think people who knew what they were doing should be held accountable and we shouldn't get away from that. So what I'm saying in bringing this whole thing up is that Atlanta is not immune to um, the segregation, the systematic segregation over a, such a long tale of history. So, I mean, you see it play out in the geography the t- and how 
people are organized throughout the city where people live, how people interact, how people relate to one another. It's still racially charged. And I will be the first to say it's like, it's, you can, you choose your own version of how you view Atlanta. And Mm -hmm. I think um, overall, my experience has been incredibly positive here. And I think it's a great city for opportunity, but what is that opportunity? Mm. Um, I think it's a very, I think people mistake and whoever the people, everybody wants to say that. I think people, people. whoever the people, (laughs) you know, they, um, but (laughs) exactly. So I think we all is a better way of saying it because I'm not immune to this condition. We all get confused between taking advantage of an opportunity and being ready for opportunity and being opportunistic. Mm -hmm. I think Atlanta is a very opportunistic city and it's not necessarily a city full of opportunity. I think that the nuance there is that um, the nuance I think is that because there is a perception of opportunity here and it's a very opportunistic city, I think that people come and I have been victim to this as well to blindly seek something better whether it's whether you think it's better whether you actually objectively know it's better you just think it's better because it's different than what you already had before but by the time you get that new thing you realize the old thing wasn't so bad yeah so that's how you end up having people moving across the country to come here to find a girl to find a boy to find you know a job to find a bar that they saw on TV or whatever it is. And it's like, dude, like, you know, in most cases you just paid a bunch of money for a house and a place that is maybe no different than where you just moved from. So in that fashion, how would you see, uh, well, I'm going to back up. Um, What it sounds like you're talking about a little bit is that like, in essence, everywhere, everything still comes down to choosing your heaven or choosing your hell, number one. So it's not that a particular place is going to be better or worse than any other place. It's the, it's the composition of attitudes of people that are there that make the place what it is. Um, Mm -hmm. So in, are there any ways in which you see design, uh, however you want to interpret that enriching the city ongoing. I mean, do you think we can create a better culture of staying, making it better, you know, not expecting the city to just fall in our lap and be great? (laughs) Yeah, I think I would like to see Atlanta pay more respect potentially to, I mean, this is an important question. So I want to be very specific about what I'm saying. So how can Atlanta improve through design and what are some opportunities for that? I think I think there's an incredible opportunity to be more projective and mm. speculative about a new way of living given the fluidity of our grid system. I'll start there. So yeah. the way that our neighborhoods are organized, the to my knowledge, the relative like non-historical nature to um, our building codes, our housing codes um, don't necessarily have a, as 
as uh, rigid and restrictive nature to them compared to somewhere like Brooklyn or somewhere like Cambridge or somewhere like these ancient, ancient like ancient in the sense mm-hmm. of American ancient towns. Right. Um, like we have a freedom is what I'm saying. Yeah. So let's start at the level of the city and the how a city is constructed. We have a freedom to establish whatever our physical heaven could be as a community versus, you know, paying attention so much to making this the, the Southeast LA or making this the Southeast New York. Like there's a specific reason why certain city organizational tendencies worked for those cities and didn't work for us. And there's a reason for that. So why don't we pay attention to the reasons that matter here? What's unique about here at not just like a cultural level, but a, at a top with respect to the earth? Like what is, yeah. a to- what is a topological truth that is about, that is here in Atlanta that we can manifest? And what mm-hmm. are those things? You know, do we want to, and it could start with very big, basic questions, like how we get around. What is, mm-hmm. what should be the culture of moving about the city of Atlanta? Should it be, a bikeable city? Should it be a a vertical city? Like, should we move horizontally? Should we move vertically? Mm. Should we should we move? Um, you know, at what speed should we be moving? Should it be a city of highways? Should it be a city of streets? And as you see, like design starts to impact the way we behave based on how you answer those sorts of questions. And to me, I don't think anybody, at to my knowledge, outside of like private ventures like the Beltline have bothered to ask those questions or answer or present any answer. Like it doesn't matter if it's the right one. Like mm. should, Atlanta, should Atlanta be a city of highways? And everybody's like, yeah, of course. We got 285, we got 85, we got 75, <laughs> we got 20. <laughs> and then the next person comes in and they're like, well, what about biking? Is biking good for the city? Yeah, we got some of that. Like Atlanta is literally like a cheesecake factory city. Yes, like, it is. We got every, <laughs> we got a big old menu. <laughs> we got everything. And I'm like, bro, it's time to it's time to take some things off the menu and say, no, we don't do that here. Yeah. At a fundamental level, because we believe in that as a city, mm. that if you go to any other city, it's like pulling up in, you know, I'm trying to think of another city I've been to a lot and I don't know that much about, but it's like going to the beach. Like you don't go to the beach and you don't like you just certain things you just don't do. Like walk. <laughs> yeah, no, you got it. I mean, yeah. So that's really interesting. So for you, you see design very impactful almost at a municipal level and an urban design consideration. Um, culturally, how do you see design making a major impact in Atlanta? And how can design empower um, neighborhoods? How can it really truly empower the people living here and build a richer, more robust culture in mm. the city? Yeah. So I think there's a theory and I think there's a practice to it. So the mm-hmm. theory is, the theory comes down to having a perspective on having leadership with regard to what is perceptively beautiful and what isn't perceptively beautiful. So what do I mean by that? I mean, in in some of the development projects that have recently happened that are have become a prime uh, eyesore or eye benefit of, depending on who you are and what your opinion is, have become a primary aspect of our skyline. Let's start there. Mm. Some parts that have become a primary aspect of our skyline have such a, um, how do I want to say, a non-integrated, non-integrated 
aesthetic to them that it, it begs the question about who approved this, who allowed for this to happen. So, and it also begs a question of like, okay, so, so since this particular expression of architecture is so um, distant and so divorced from the rest of the city in this sector of the city, what is it that those people were attempting to say? And it, what the most frustrating thing for me is that at a theoretical level, this is why I'm starting here, like theoretical mm-hmm. level, there seems to be little to little to none, like when it comes to um, assertive and projective opinion on what beautiful looks like. And what some people are saying, oh, wait, like, let's just take this adaptive reuse approach. And let's just like, everything needs to be brick and industrial because Atlantic Station used to be a, a, uh, a railroad station. And it's like, okay, well, that's nice. But what about these other buildings that are all glass over here next to it? Like, what does that say about respect to these places? And right. which I think Atlanta's developing a very interesting design sensibility and aesthetic that questions a lot about what we, you know, I'm going to, a brief tangent here, but like, if you study how ancient cities and ancient city plans are constructed, ancient meaning like before uh, Christianity. Like um, really ancient. Yeah, yeah, like really ancient. Yeah. You realize that like city plans weren't contingent on um, the com- the commerce portion of the city being the center of the city. Um, so like, you know, you study city plans in uh, India, you study city plans in um, Southeast Asia, I mean, which is also India, the same thing, but uh, even African city plans, mm-hmm. like there is no business district, like, you know what I'm saying? Like there is no yeah. downtown, like what does downtown mean? And I think, like I was saying earlier, this concept of returning to, to fundamental principles, to basic principles, to foundations, what cities were constructed on, on then is sort of um, this Hegelian idea of there being an invisible spirit that connected us. So your city plans were projections from an invisible center. And it begs what you see happening now, excuse me, what you see happening now, given the fact that nobody's really going to any city center right now, like everybody's making money from wherever, like people realize that's, it's long overdue, it's been time for that. So now (laughs) we're in that world, you know, where the city center is secondary to the rest of our lives, what is the center of our city? Mm -hmm. And what respect should we be paying to that center? Is it the land? Is it certain land masses like Stone Mountain, like, you know, uh, Bellwood Quarry? River. Yeah. Yeah. Those things. So should we be paying respect to that? Should we be paying respect to our, (laughs) our (laughs) monuments of vice that are the bars? You know what I'm saying? Like, my my opinions here are basically that you can tell a whole lot about a city based on how it's developing, the speed at which it's developing, and what it's paying its respect to. And right now, Atlanta's paying respect to a whole lot of a whole lot of nonsense. And- That's what it seems like. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. Oh man. So, so yeah. So how does it get back down to the ground level for for people? Like, how can um. I think one of the dichotomies that's problematic is there's so much private development yeah. that I just don't feel like really takes any account for 
cultural repercussion or um, like communal involvement in any way. So what needs to happen so that, I would almost say that the standard goes up because the city, the people actually living in the city rise, you know, raise the standard of what we want with design. Yeah. Um, there's an interesting dialectic there between strategy and tactics where the strategy is more top down and the tactics are more bottom up. And mm -hmm. I think when people get, you know, probably down on themselves, like, man, what am I supposed to do about this? Like, yeah, I don't like that either, but what am I, what am I supposed to do? And there are some things that I think at a fundamental thought level, you can start doing and thinking about because um, the ancestor of every action is a thought. So let's start there. So right. if nobody likes private development, then I think it's important for people to start thinking about how private development occurs. And like I was saying earlier about understanding program, like understand what the beast is before you yeah. start critiquing it. The reason I'm pretty vocal about the beast is because I spent a significant amount of time studying how it works, like mm. to the point to where I was um, nearly participating in it. Mm. Um, viewing, I mean, very specifically, it's like the the boom of house flipping, the boom of, uh, you know, uh, what is it, like buying and renting, those sorts of things, those sorts of real estate tactics naturally evolves into understanding how the real estate development game works and understanding how REITs work. Mm -hmm. And this is where the economics mind kicks in, where it's like, okay, bro, like I understand what's going on here. And what they, what the developers stand typically don't understand is um, the spirit. And mm. immediately, as soon as I say that, people are like, oh, here he goes. Like, da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, yeah. no. And that that is the fundamental dichotomy, the fundamental schism that's going on in society is that there is a concern with the body and there's a concern with the spirit. Right. And fundamentally, at a thought level, humans and people on their day-to-day -day life need to concern themselves with which side you know, how to produce an argument for both sides. Mm -hmm. So when, if somebody's asking was like, Justin, like, what can you do? Like, what am I supposed to do day to day? Should I go to, should I start going to city council meetings? Should I start like, you know, petitioning? Should I, should I protest? Like, no, all that stuff is just like a clown show. If you don't have any, if you don't even know what your circus is. Right. So at times I really think that the most fundamental thing we can do is to establish whether we are, like to what degree are we concerned with the body and to what degree are we concerned with the spirit? Because I can produce an argument that supports both and I can produce, you know, as a designer, my goal and what I'm actively working on day in and day out is to get incredibly skilled at producing a projected image or a projective wrapper that is the building that is coincident and is supportive of the spirit within as opposed to being divorced from it and like in constant tension. So, I think that that's, there's interesting opportunities. Um, and I think the most way to, the best way to get involved with it is to understand the opposite side and how it works. That is absolutely borderline poetic. And I, I think you hit the nail on the head that, uh, seriously, I think like the, the tension in any practice, I think ultimately comes down to that dichotomy. Uh, that you just mentioned, the relationship of the spirit to the body, 
uh, or uh, you could say the temporal to the infinite even. Um, the desire to ever expand and the desire to quantify and clarify, uh, I mm. think is at the root of so much design. Um, and so I really, really appreciate that. Um, I think we're probably getting a little close to the end of time. Um, I was curious, is there anything you would like to uh, share with the listeners that we haven't touched on or anything you'd like to close out with? <clears throat> uh. Hmm. No, not really. I think I think that's what people always do. No, not really. But I, think I just want to. <laughs> but I have a list. <laughs> uh, man, uh, I think you know. I just thank you for you know indulging. Um, for those listening, thank you for listening to us, and for you, thank you for inviting me and having me. I think this is incredibly, uh, incredibly fun, incredibly insightful, and incredibly therapeutic. Absolutely, likewise. Um, um, so thank you for being on the show. Uh, I've been speaking with Justin McEldry. Did I say it correctly? You did. Perfect. Yeah, I, I had to slow the, slow the train <laughs> down for a second. <laughs> um, Justin McEldry. And he uh, he's the, the founder of Educated Guests and Work Study. Uh, he's based here in Atlanta and um, wonderful guy to get in conversation with. So thanks for spending some time. I'm Christopher Knowles. I'm the executive director of Practice Makes Practice. And thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in until we uh, meet again. All right. Thanks. Peace. <laughs>